Everything has to get started on top. Three stitches on top, at least, to secure the thread in place. And we start with a little knot. But once we have the thread secured, we, we tend to like to cut off the knot. I like to cut it off the knot. And then you get a lovely tidy finish. You go along and you tidy away all the threads and suddenly what looked like a mess, a picture emerges. In Celtic Ireland of 1155, the old Brehan laws and rituals still held sway. Dermot McMurrah, King of Leinster, took flight with Dervor Gilla, wife of his enemy, Tiernan O'Rourke, the King of Breffney. The pair were seen galloping from the O'Rourke Castle to Dermot's stone fortress in Ferns, with Dervor Gilla's dowry, cattle and household belongings in tow. I wonder if we had to stick the needle in you. No, you it. won't stick it in me, it's a heartbeat or not. Stitch by stitch, history is in the making. Centuries of history, embroidered in 15 huge panels. The result, the Ross Tapestry, and a tale told in thread. This one is popularly blamed, is the word used, for the arrival of the Normans, because Dermot McMurrah, who was the King of Leinster, abducted the wife of the King of Breffney and made off with her back to his castle in Ferns in North Wexford. It was probably an elopement. An awful lot of shouting went on, but they believed that they actually eloped. It wasn't an abduction. That tended to happen from time to time in Irish society, but there was always a price to pay. Celtic law was not much given to physical punishment as much as damage to your pocket. So if you have a doctor, the wife of another, you had to pay to the husband six and a half pounds of solid gold, which is a lot of money. And anyway, Dermot said he wouldn't pay it because it was an elopement. He hadn't abducted her. She willingly came. Dermot had scant enough respect for the old Celtic ways. So anyway, he did not pay and he lost an awful lot of supporters by his high-handedness in general. So eventually he found himself without friends and threatened by the High King, who liked nothing of what he was doing. Dermot was overthrown and fled to Bristol in search of help to regain his kingdom. This happened a lot among the Irish chieftains. When they got really in a tight place, they ran for help elsewhere. So he was not the first to do that. He was the first, perhaps, to have such an extraordinary effect on Ireland for the rest of time. Only looks like yesterday. Fifteen years ago, a community came together with a grand vision to tell the forgotten history of their town of New Ross, County Wexford. How the arrival of the Normans in the 12th century, at the invitation of Dermot McMurrow, would eventually lead to the founding of New Ross by William Marshall, a famous knight and crusader who married Dermot's granddaughter Isabel. Didn't we come a long way? Yeah, and Kitty, you were the one responsible for me coming here. Remember you met me on the road one day and said to me about the tapestry. Yeah. Would it be? I, I really, I couldn't believe it when I saw what you were doing. And for me coming. Yeah. Was she? Yeah. Pardon? If the cat had kittens, I'd be blamed for the whole lot. <laughs> the Ross tapestry was born, spread across 15 different panels each six foot by four and a half foot in size, 
The tapestries tell the stories of battles and weddings. It's like the Hello magazine of its time. You can see Dermot, the dethroned King of Leinster, Aoife, the young bride, and William Marshall, the man with the fantastic rags-to-riches story. Well, I'm embroidering the perfect knight here. This is, he's my Fitzgerald, is that right, Alexis? Yeah. He's Fitzgerald. So it's the, it's the only chance I'll get to make the perfect man here. Here he is. <laughs> Artist Anne Griffin Bernsdorf was commissioned to design the artwork, or cartoons as they are known, on which the tapestries are based. One of the things that really started the thing rolling at all is because the new rector was not a local man and uh, he had looked up, as you might do, the history of the town and was absolutely taken aback by the riches and the, the, the importance of the early days. And uh, when he talked about it to people in the town, complete blank, they were not... I mean, he wasn't talking to historians, of course, obviously always knew, but in general there was no feel at all of what lay behind or underneath, you might say. And uh, that's what I said, well, we must do something to, you know, to be, make people realise how important this place is. Anne also researched the historical events, customs, dress and folklore that provide layers upon layers of information in each panel. Then the work started, which was a stupendous amount of work. The cartoons had to be painted after the research had been done, and uh, that was quite complicated, and it had to be as accurate as we could do as, as lay people, and we had to also choose elements of factual history that could be visualised, which is not always as straightforward as it sounds, so that the cartoons were 15 cartoons, full size, that is six feet by four and a half feet, and 15 of them. So they were, they're all laden with information from the period. So it, was, it became elaborate, even at the point of the cartoons. It was elaborate at that time and just went on getting more and more elaborate as the stitches started to work. Okay, I might put a bit of that groundwork in first yeah, then, yeah. and then I'll be able to come in with that dark one. Where is it? The one you have there oh, yeah. is floating that in a little bit on top. This immense project has been underway since 1998. Twelve of the 15 panels are finished, three still a work in progress. A committee was put together to organise funding and logistics. The hope is that someday... This will rival the famous Bayou Tapestry in France. Well, you could give it a bit of shadow the whole way up mm-hmm. um, if you want. Mm-hmm. Okay. The painstaking and time-consuming needlework is entirely done by volunteers, mainly women, all ages and from all walks of life. Anne's daughter, Alexis Bernsdorf, a textile specialist, has trained the 150 or so volunteers in the art of embroidery. Tapestry, in a way, is kind of like an umbrella term for a lot of work done on variation of canvases and variation of wools and threads. So uh, tapestry can vary from woven tapestry, where embroidery, you have a solid ground and it's stitched into. We are strictly an embroidery tapestry. There are a variety of stitches that you use. You have long and short stitch and you have... Not satin stitch, no, what's the other? The bullion knots and the French knots and split stitch. That's more long and short, a long stitch and a short stitch. And then when you go back, the next row you put, where the long is, you put a short. That's how that's done. Down here, when you stroll out, you'll see that there's seeding. It's kind of in and out, very easy to do seeding. And it's a kind of a filler in for a background, you know. 
The different stitches give illusions of shade, patterns and texture. The outline of the cartoons was transferred from the painted canvas onto linen fabric by Alexis. The stitchers are seated at an 8-foot frame, a specially built wooden unit which holds the embroidery panel taut. Four people sit at a time facing the cartoon, so they can always refer to the colours and shading they need to replicate with the wool thread. I done the legs of this uh, Norman horse first, and to get the different hoofs and colours into it. And I did, I did the hair. So Warren and I actually did these two huge horses, which took seven years. Arrogant trespass. The Normans landing at Bano Strand. You can see Dermot in the next panel, sailing to Bristol, where he was told to try to find Henry II, king of the time. Henry II had land from the Pyrenees to the boundary of Scotland. He was an incredibly wealthy king and much wealthier than the King Francis at the time. Anyway, eventually he found him in Aquitaine and the king said, yes, you can go and try to find somebody in Wales if you can. I give you good wishes and a letter, no more. So anyway, he got back and he could find no one until he came across a couple of Normans who were in very bad state out down in the lock. And one of them was actually in prison, so organised for him to be released and come to help Dermot in Ireland. Dermot McMurrow had his hopes fulfilled at last when in May 1169 a small band of knights and soldiers landed quietly on Banno Strand in the south of Wexford. There was Robert Fitzstephen, who you see here, mounted, and there's Dermot coming down from Ferns to greet him. This was the big moment where eventually help, which was get his kingdom back and put him in a position of power, had arrived. A crucial moment. The collision between the old Celtic world and the new Norman influence emerges through visual themes throughout the series. In the tapestry, we see the arrival of Fitzstephen being greeted there by Dermot McMurray historian Dr Linda Doran. And I suppose one of the things to notice in the tapestry is the difference in dress. Fitzstephen's is in this armour and this would be very much, you know, if you if you think about, for example, knights on the Crusades and this is happening around about the same time as the Crusades so that they're arriving in all this armour. Very expensive kind of to actually put a knight in the field. You know, he comes not only on his own but with all the armour and with all this kind of support train. Uh, Dermot, on the other hand, is dressed kind of quite simply. Dermot is identified by his checkered trousers, or trues. His trues are used everywhere. Everywhere you see these ochre-coloured trues, that is Dermot. Trues like that were discovered in the Book of Kells, where there is an illustration of, I think, an 11th century Celt wearing trues exactly like that. So he said, yes, that's an authentic garment. We use that. The design of the horses also has a particular significance. So you see the little uh, sort of dun-coloured pony type that the Irish used, a Connemara sort. And then the great heavy horses that the Normans brought with them because they weighed a lot more because they're chain mail. But these two types of horses bred, they, th- they believe, to make the what is now known as the Irish draft horse, which is still with us, of course. So you do have to have some background to your decisions. Fanciful things we keep to the absolute minimum because there's so much material out there that you can use there's no need for massive creative things because it's there already just a question of illustrating it The Siege of Wexford 
From high ground, Dermot McMurrah and Robert Fitzstephen, with their combined forces of warriors, bared down on the first target of their campaign, the Viking town of Wexford. And the ships... Yeah, and I uh, stitched these Viking ships on the quays of Wexford now. That's where that is. Yeah. And so Dermot here is showing him Wexford and saying, get on with the siege yeah. now. We'll, yeah. we'll yeah. all be on happy. The this is the first effort of Dermot to get his new Norman friends into action. He promised Robert Fitzstephen the town of Wexford at the time. Trouble is that Robert Fitzstephen discovered that there was a hitch because Dermot did not own that town. It had been owned by the Norse themselves for 300 years and had only a very nominal contact with the King of Leinster at the time. However, it didn't stop Dermot from offering it as a reward. The first attempt to take the Norse town was not met with great success. The Norse rained down arrows, resulting in a considerable loss of Dermot's men. Anyway, they had to take it. He thought he was going to get the keys of the town in his hand, instead of which he had to go out and try to do battle, which he did not win, actually. There was a truce, but they did not, on the whole, win that town from the Norse. Following assaults on the walled city, the Norse called for terms of peace, which ultimately led to recognition, once again, of Dermot as their king. The host venues play a huge role in the project. Over 10 groups have been stitching weekly in homes and public spaces around the county of Wexford and nearby Kilkenny. Alexis has been supervising the work from the beginning, making sure the standard is consistent across the panels. Well, we're here now in the um, top floor of the Grenin Crafts School and we're sitting on the panel The Battle in the Kingdom of Osri. So this was the one scene from Kilkenny, so we got to stitch it here in Thomastown as close as we could, I guess, to where the site of the battle was, which was Clashton Crow in near Freshford. Okay. And then we'll do some... I was looking for a second one of those because that's been put in double there, you know, and we've just got one of them. Oh, I see. We've always tried to locate the uh, tapestry in action as close to the historic event as possible. So there's an engagement with the local history and um, sense of identity and ownership through that. Battles in the Kingdom of Ossory. With the help of the Normans, Dermot continued the battle to regain his lost kingdom. The King of Ossory, Donal MacGillifauric, was a mortal enemy of Dermot MacMurrah. Dermot's army made their way to Freshford in the summer of 1169. This is the first real encounter between Dermot and his, his sworn enemies. The, the most sworn of the enemies was uh, Donal MacGillifauric, who we had blinded the son and heir of Dermot, which is what they intended to do. If they wanted to really damage a son, they didn't kill him offhand, they blinded him, which made him useless. It was a kind of a twist to the horrible revenge thing. Organised and experienced, Dermot and the Normans annihilated the army of MacGillifauric. The loss of life was frightful, but Dermot was avenged. Dermot is in the middle, in the thick of the battle, and all his colleagues now, which were about half in number to the King of Ossory's, when they 
met to do battle in Freshwood. And uh, you can see all the various arms tell you the story of who they are. It's a very dynamic one with lots of movement and very um, condensed and pressurised, obviously, battle scene. Heads are here and legs are sticking out there and it's all pell-mell battle, just very deliberately done to do with the, the mayhem and um, mess of battle. Although she's gone easy on the blood. Yeah, it's, it's left. Yeah, it's left up more to the imagination. This we we can gore it up a bit. We will. Yeah. We're just talking about Les Mis. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I tell you, it really was heart wrenching. I know it's Les Misérables, and you're meant to come out maybe feeling miserable, <laughs> but it certainly did the job. But, we discussed yeah. all sorts of things while we're sewing. To everybody's happenings and joyous times and sad times and plenty of tea and cake and we've we've built up quite a nice friendship between us all. People would actually say things to each other without you know because often some therapy groups are in a circle and you're expected to and it's a very difficult thing to do where you can easily just say something and it runs up and down the line and you know nobody makes a big fuss but then people are more comfortable because people are aware of whatever problems they might be going through or something they'd like people to know without there being a big fuss so it's that's an interesting thing because you're working with your hands you're relaxed and the ideas can just float up and down without you know making major statements or causing ructions or anything. So it's, it's, it's very interesting from that point of view and very lovely. There was lots of stories on lots of different things yeah. that did happen we had great to fun. all of us. Lots yeah. of weddings and babies yeah. born and relations That's and right. all and, those and type even of things. People, even some of us lost family members. Mm. And as Alexis said is right, we just you, uh, a subject we've mentioned and everyone never lost a stitch but you know how the other person felt and what was going on in their life and they talked about how and that something like that happened in their house, how they dealt with it. And yet you knew what was discussed stayed within the room. But with all kinds, with new births, Anna, the son marriage, your grandchildren, with members lost family, some had family grew up and moved away, some went to college, some didn't stay in college, different things and we all, it was all trashed out. At this point in the narrative of the tapestry, the attention is turned to the man with the leading role in the new Ross story, William Marshall. But what happened in between? Waterford was Dermot's next target. Henry II gave permission to Richard de Clare, known as Strongbow, to assist McMurrah in his struggle for Leinster. The Normans came to Ireland really as part of mercenaries organised by Dermot McMurrah. The idea of going out of the country to bring in mercenaries is not unknown. Um, as part of the kind of bargain to encourage the Normans over, Dermot promised his daughter Aoife to Strongbow, Richard de Clare, who was one of the principal Normans. The daughters of Irish chieftains and Norman knights had been espoused before the momentous union between Aoife and Strongbow, but rarely with so much at stake or with such far-reaching consequences. So he comes over and Dermot promises him a marriage to Aoife and he implies to him that this will allow him to succeed to the Lordship of Leinster. But of course this is totally out of sync with Irish law because succession within Irish law passes within the Deerfin, a kind of an extended family group. So in doing this, Dermot was kind of leading him up the garden path. But nevertheless, Strongbow and Aoife are married 
And when a Dermoth dies, Strongbow by this time is in a really strong position and he does succeed to the Lordship of Leinster. But the link there is Aoife McMurray. Strongbow and Aoife married in Reginald's Tower in Waterford in 1170. Aoife, who's probably in her late teens when she marries Strongbow, and he was a lot older than her, he dies, and usually when that happens, the estate passes into the control of the crown. They had two children, a boy and a girl. And I suppose one of the big concerns would be that the estate not be asset strips. They control lands in Leinster, they control lands in Wales, they control lands in France, and they had lands in England. So it's quite an extensive estate, the Declare Lands. Um, Aoife manages brilliantly. In fact, she's working in a system that she doesn't really understand, but she does very, very well. The son dies and she's left with her daughter, Isabel. And normally what happens is that the son or daughter is married off by the crown to somebody who's in the good favours of the crown. William Marshall, the flower of chivalry. Enter William Marshall, one of the great hero characters of the Middle Ages. Historian Donica O'Callaghan of the Waterford Medieval Museum. And William Marshall, he was born in the 1130s, of humble origin, even though he would have been of landed gentry stock, wasn't very wealthy, a younger son, no chance of inheriting land himself. He, he trained as a knight, went to Normandy, which was still part of the English possessions at the time, and um, he was knighted there. And from that point on, in the 1160s, 1170s, he was more or less a professional soldier. Had to live in his wits. He um, served various masters. He also, of course, made a fortune on the tournament circuit. These sort of tournaments that we can imagine, sort of the Middle Ages of knights on horseback and fighting each other. These were, I suppose, the equivalent of professional boxers or professional sportsmen at the time. If you were good you could make a fortune and William Marshall was certainly very good and he did make a fortune, did very, very well. He also came to the attention of the royal court at the time and of Henry II and Henry's wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine. And he became very much sort of associated with the royal court and with the family of Henry II and Henry's children afterwards. He managed to persuade Henry II to allow him to marry Isabel the daughter of Strongbow and Eva. And Isabel was certainly a desirable catch. The marriage of Isabel de Clare and William Marshall. William Marshall and Isabel, the granddaughter of Dermot McMurrah, were married in London in 1189. He was in his late 40s when he married Isabel de Clare and she was around about 17 or 18, and the second richest woman in England. So it was a huge kind of a coup for him. But the marriage appears to be terribly successful. We were envious here of that one because they were doing all these beautiful gowns and fleur-de-lis and all these beautiful things, and we were busy stitching armour and horses and grass grass and more grass. Yeah. Uh, the first thing I had to do was Isabel's wedding dress with all the folds and that. Mm-hmm. And it was just, I thought I would never do it because we were all novices. Mm-hmm. You know, we had practised a little bit, but mm-hmm. we really didn't know what we were doing. So uh, we invented the term reverse stitching, which was <laughs> when we picked it out. When Alexis wasn't there or wasn't watching, we just cut out the bits that we had done wrong. So we called it reverse stitching. <laughs> Through his marriage to Isabel, William became Lord of Leinster and Earl of Pembroke. 
he served Henry II and his sons, Richard and John. At that time, King John had arrived on the throne of England and a very difficult man, very. But William was very good about him. He was was very steady. While he didn't like him, he never betrayed him or did anything other than support that king. However, the king did not want him to go to Ireland because he was terrified that he'd become very powerful in Ireland and would maybe become a challenge. Until we get the rota going, that people should ring to say they're coming. If they're With coming some panels taking eight years to complete, the making of 15 embroidered panels sounds like a task more suited to the medieval times when the pace of life was slower. But the slowness is part of the attraction. The work was so slow uh, to get through, particularly in the first panel, the Celtic fastness. Every entire bit of that was stitched and it was stitched with two strands of wool. And to get through that, we what did we say? It took uh, an hour, an inch, if, if you were... Yeah, yeah, a square inch. A, a square inch in an yes, hour. Yes. But yes, it was yes. kind of... It was, it was very good for... Um, Focusing your attention, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, the, particularly this area here was very fine little seeding and it's mm-hmm. like little grains of rice. Mm-hmm. And each stitch you have to watch with a needle going in and out. And it's kind of like a meditation. You're just kind of quietly stitching away and focusing. It actually, I found it very good for slowing me down. Yes. But it, honestly, it is great for you, though, isn't it? You'd never, you'd forget about everything when oh, you're doing it. It's a it's a absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're absorbed so yeah. much in it, in it yeah. that you don't even... You look forward to You know, time just flies. Mm-hmm. Hours you never even think There's of. no radio or no nothing. <laughs> no, 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 never, never, never. There'd be all this chit-chat, you know what I mean? And I love the sound of the tread going through the canvas. Yeah, Isn't it? There's a lovely... It's like the sea coming around, right. lapping. <laughs> calming effect. Calming, it has mm. a calming effect. The Vow, Tintern Abbey, William Marshall's stormy crossing to Ireland. In 1200, William finally achieved permission from King John to set sail for Ireland with his wife and children. During the voyage, a violent storm erupted in the Irish Sea, threatening to overwhelm his ship and the accompanying flotilla carrying horses, servants and supplies. In the eye of the storm, he vowed that if they were spared, he would build a Cistercian abbey where the ship made landfall. And so, it came to pass. In the panel we see a storm-tossed ship. The Virgin Mary appears in a vision, holding up a model of the church, which still stands today in Banno Bay, County Wexford. This lady was my bit that I did. I'm very proud of that. Don't so I love the pink dress. It's on the Virgin. It is beautiful, Dan. Oh, it's really no beautiful. child of Mary blue. No. Yes, that's too unusual yeah, to see no. this. The Virgin Mary. Yes. Pictures in pink. Yeah. 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 So I never noticed that before. In it. This is what's yeah. remarkable about the whole tapestry: is the slightest variation in the colour. Yeah, it's lovely. Makes such a difference. 
Yeah, you know, really, and you'd look at it and you'd go to pick out a colour and it's just yeah. off by maybe the slightest shade. It's hardly detectable. But yes, it makes I'm such a difference when you put it in. Very slight shadings, but they're all so important to give it that lovely colour and depth. Not to mention eyes yeah, and, hand, and fingers. Have you done fingers, Anne? Uh, listen, I'd be too scared to start a finger now. I, <laughs> I don't... I've done a wrist. Fingers, we definitely think, are the hardest. And Fingers eyes. Are hard or do you hands, think, do you think eyes? Let me see, you were on an eyes. Remember Anya when she was doing uh, Dermot McMurray's? How many colours did we discern oh. in them? Was it mm. 30 or 50? It was crazy. In one hand. Yeah. It's fleshy colour. And it's and got the, the grip, tones. you know, you can yeah. see the grip mm. there of like the, the muscles. It's really yeah, muscle right holding it. Yeah. Yes, there's about f- three, four yellows same amount of pinks and then um, olive green creams. Creams. So, I mean, you're talking about about, um, at least 15 to 20 shades just in that hand. And And white, obviously, yeah. By this time, a whole generation has passed since the first landing of the Normans in Wexford so that William Marshall's activities, shown in several panels of the tapestry, are more constructive than those who came before him. As well as doing something very spiritual, he does something very practical as a result of his stormy crossing by building a lighthouse on Hook Head. This is one of the oldest in Europe and still functions today. Evening, the lighthouse at Hook Head. I, I remember doing the moon. That was the first thing I did on there. <laughs> and I, I wasn't happy with it, but um, it stayed. I wasn't made on ticket. <laughs> and some of these, you know, the donkey cart here now and the, the wheels and the, that, that was my area down. This, this bit down here was my area. William Marshall built this lighthouse. It's it's still the same shape, more or less, than it is now, and they feel that he had seen a similar one in Syria when he was on the Crusades and uh, felt that this would be a very good help to the trading he hoped to set up at New Ross, which was a greenfield site, more or less, at that time. So first the lighthouse, then the trading. The panels were worked on out of sequence, and this was the first to be stitched. The late Dr Billy Colfer, who helped with the historical research on the project, spotted a glitch. He was a historian, you know, special, he specialised in the Norman period, and he came in to see the Hook Lighthouse, because he lived there beside the Hook Lighthouse. And he came in to see it one day and he said, oh, it wouldn't have been like that at the top. <laughs> and poor Juliet had just finished it beautifully. You know, it was kind of higher and curved or something, wasn't it, Alexis? It had no top, and everybody was looking forward to embroidering the flames, the the reds, yellows and blues, having spent (laughs) so long on the grey, slaty, (laughs) rough sea to do some poor Juliet had to unpick the top and uh, redo. And I think you left it with pencil marks on it, didn't you? That was our first one. We were feeling our way. We were trying to get to grips with this highly complicated thing. I hadn't realised that it was so evolved a building initially. So we discovered afterwards that, in fact, the building that's there now is roughly the same building. So we thought, oh, good Lord, now we have to rejig 
this a bit to make it look more like the original building that William Marshall built. So they've deliberately left the pencil mark because it's part of the evolution. It can be very easily taken out. They've left it just for fun, really. And then yeah. there's a story about the seaboard, is it, you know? Oh, yes, that... there's the, the a puffin <laughs> here. And the puffin, the man from the Wildlife Service in Wexford came to see it. <laughs> and he said, uh-uh, a puffin only has one cheek. And there were two chicks. But you, I think you left that in too, didn't you? <laughs> yes, there was a story of it being an orphan, you know, that yeah. it was taken yeah. in. <laughs> yes. So we had to be so careful. Anything from ornithology, yeah. cattle yeah. rearing, yeah. Uh, you know, history of the Crusades, yeah. everything has to be... <laughs> but what's really nice is that everybody has something to say, something to contribute. There's so many knowledgeable people out there, and this is not an opportunity for them to contribute. <laughs> The thriving port of Ross. In 1207, William and Isabel could at last turn their attention to the needs of the province of Leinster. In Leinster, especially and in Ireland, the one thing that they lacked was a port of their own. You know, they, they had Kilkenny City, but Kilkenny, an inland town, an inland city, doesn't have a port. And William Marshall realised that in the Middle Ages, especially in the th- early 13th century, that um, trade was perhaps the most important factor in sort of developing an estate. You know, Leinster could produce a huge range of goods, but exporting all those goods was always going to be a problem. He could have used Dublin, perhaps, or Waterford, but he wanted a port of his own. Waterford was royal property, Dublin also, so he decided to develop his own town. And, of course... Here we come. Here enters Nuros into the equation, the town that was built by Isabel and William Marshall. In this panel, we see merchants, tradesmen, and finely dressed Italian bankers doing business on the quay in Nuros. This is Ross at its peak. It was the the outside of Dublin. It was the trading zone, and that was because William was so influential. If he wanted a financier or an engineer or people good with mechanics, all you had to do is tell them to come at once, and they came. So instead of growing very slowly like most towns might, it grew vertically, went straight up, and became immensely wealthy and evolved in a very short space of time. The 13th century uh, was a time of enormous prosperity right across Europe, and Ireland was no exception. We can call it maybe perhaps the Anglo-Norman tiger. In a way, Ireland was joining a, a huge common market, you know, long before we can even think of that term, a sort of a trading Europe as such, like a, a Europe based on trade. The top and bottom of each panel in the Ross Tapestry contains borders which feed into the main story, telling something about the time before or after the main subject. The upper border of this panel shows the imports coming in. They would have brought in wine. They would have brought in very fine silks, fine materials, produce basically that are not produced locally, a lot of luxury goods. It's a very European, it's, it's part of this kind of European move of new towns. They're by and large, they're commercial foundations, as New Ross was, and they tend to fulfil a very specific function. So New Ross fulfils the very specific function of dealing with the Lordship of Leinster. The lower border shows Irish horses being loaded into freight boats for export to the armies of Europe. Exotics come in from outside and then we let our stuff out. Horses were exported, hunting dogs and falcons. These were used for hunting abroad. The Irish falcons were much prized. 
what we did well made us rich in euros. That's what it is. Wool, horses, falcons, hunting dogs. One of the indications of how European Euros was at this point is the presence of Italian bankers. Italian bankers control within the Lordship of Leinster right up until the start of the 14th century all of the customs returns. They look after all of the tax. So you kind of get this feeling of of a cosmopolitan town, a very wealthy town, a very kind of a colourful town. This is the colonel at a very early stage in Ireland and in the south. Very unlikely, it sounded like, but this happened. It was like a, uh, in a bubble of growth that went all over Europe, all over Europe. A totally massive boom, a massive boom. I wonder what they had thought of today's banking crisis, the Norman bankers of yesterday. <laughs> they wouldn't be what, shocked, what, would, would they? Would we have gotten any answers from them? They mightn't have been such gamblers <laughs> in those days. They might have been more responsible. <laughs> the sheaf of corn, the distaff descent. William's life in the service of the kings continued until his death in 1219. He must have felt that his line through his five sons was well assured... But astonishingly, despite several marriages, all of them died without issue, and the ownership of Leinster fell to his daughters. This is the sheaf of corn, and this is William Marshall and his wife Isabel, and these are their children. And it's a musical evening, and the flags represent the families that they married into. This one is called the Listaff side because peculiarly, when William Marshall married Dermot's granddaughter, they had ten children, five boys, five girls. The weird thing is that the boys, some of whom were married twice, had no children at all, neither girl nor boy. So the inheritance of Leinster fell to the girls. And because their father was at that time regent of England, he had taken over England because the king was only nine years old. So he was voted to be the most responsible baron in England and he ran England in the name of this young boy. So the girls got the land and that was a slight disaster for this whole storyline is because they were married to very rich grandees that their father had chosen for them. And they had land everywhere, mostly in France, some of it in France, Leinster divided in five wasn't quite enough to keep their full attention, which means it went down to the distaff side three or four generations through the girls because they had to chop it and chop it and chop it. So the whole thing is to show that that had quite a sharp effect on the Norman world in this area. Ross goes into a decline from about the mid-14th century. After William Marshall dies... The estate is split multiple ways. So the lordship, the kind of raison d'etre for New Ross almost disappears. And then it, the town just settles down to be the kind of charming place it is at the moment. But it, in the medieval period, it's hard to understand how absolutely booming it was. Even the Black Death in 1345 failed to entirely extinguish her stellar ranking amongst the competitive ports of Leinster. But New Ross obviously is in that kind of Black Death corridor, you know, where you get it up the East Coast and along the Barrow and the Nore, that those kind of navigable rivers that it's being carried. So New Ross would have been very affected. But New Ross, I think, declines more because of the economic realities of the time. Fifteen years in the making, 
this vast project being carried out on a very miniature scale is still a work in progress. The 12 completed panels are currently on exhibition in New Ross. The remaining panels will possibly take another few years, but every stitch is a stitch closer to finishing, and the Ross tapestry will itself become a piece of history. It's lovely to go down and stand and look at it now. I could spend a day to go down and take mm. a chair and look at every panel and say, would I stitch that stitch the same, or how would I do that? Mm. I don't that think we realise what's been done, I really don't. I think just because it's here and because we know everybody. If that were somewhere else, even in Belfast, we'd be ooing and aahing and we'd be going up there to see it. Wexford is still, to this day, full of Norman names. Like, That's um, right. Brown, my family is Rossiter, Farthing, Roach. Yeah. There's lots yeah. of, I mean... And Devereux. And Devereux. Devereux. Yeah. Yeah, it's still alive here today, the, the history of it. The people are still here today and the families are continuing. But another thing, as we finished the tapestry, we then wrote our names in our handwriting on a bit that you don't see. It's the bits that turned in behind the frame. And then we embroidered our names, I suppose two inches long, each name. But that's happened on all the tapestries. It is there at the back to see who stitched this particular one, which is nice. We're not, won't be forgotten. <laughs> won't be forgotten. <laughs>